Sit down if you want to. Right in the middle of what's going on. I'm in the middle of an interrogation. Take a seat, young Skywalker. The middle children of history, man. Middle of the day, Alfred. Please, take a seat there. Right now, I'm in the middle of nowhere. It's up the middle, it's a base hit! Meeting in the middle. Spike, Spike. They fought for the freedom of middle. The middle of the middle. The middle of the middle. The middle of a war! This is friggin' ridiculous! Why don't we have a seat talk it over? No! Not the middle seat! Put down that cup of tea and get out of your mind excited for the latest episode of the Middle Seats Podcast, the best seat in the house for all things movies and entertainment. I'm the master of your nightmares, Mr. Andrew J. Boy, that's a that's a bad one to introduce myself with. But yeah, that's normally something you'd say to me. Yeah, for real. I'm Andrew J. I'm your host tonight. He's as reliable as a TSA agent coming to save your life, Mr. Nate Lungarini. <laughs> How's it going, everybody? Good to be with you. Let's get going. And he's as meh as the Keanu of any filmmaker's resume, Mr. Jay Kensler. Ouch! Uh, I remember both of us thinking Keanu was pretty decent. So I'm That's why I said your, meh. Not call terrible. BS there. The cat was cute. Yeah, the cat was cute. <laughs> Jake wasn't the cat. Jake was the meh part. But <laughs> Jake was meh. Yeah, there it is. Anyway, the Middle Seas Podcast, like I said, is the best seat in the house for all things movies and entertainment. If you're just joining us for the first time, our show is divided into three segments. We kind of just go back and forth on a kind of a fun little segment called Lobby Talk. Then we move into the big hard news items of the week. There's a lot of good stuff this week. And then we go into our feature review, which this week is of Jordan Peele's sophomore horror film, Us. A quick reminder, if you don't want to listen to the entire show, we'd be very sad. But you know what? We understand. You're busy. You've got a lot of things to do throughout your day. There are time codes in the description below. You can skip to the part you want to hear. So we're, we're just happy you're joining us right now for this latest episode of the Middle Seeds Podcast. Let's move into our Lobby Talk segment. Let's all go to the lobby. You're in the lobby? What do you look like? I will blow up the block before you can make the lobby. So this week on Lobby Talk, we got to thinking about, you know, what a transformation Peel has done. We're talking about his Us movie. He did Get Out a couple years ago. But his origins, his beginnings, is the comedic skit show, Key and Peel. And, you know, we really just wanted to tackle something nice, something simple before we get into the complicated Us. What is our favorite Key and Peel skit? Naturally, the Lobby Talk person goes last, so I'll swing it over to the lovely handy dandy Nate. Nate, what is your favorite Key and Peel skit? Alrighty. Lots of options to choose from. We could probably go for days on just the best of the best, but my personal favorite is the dueling hats skit. Yo, what's up, man? How you? Ben. Oh, you know, cuz. Keeping it straight. The basic premise is you see the guy with the sticker on his hat. With the little tag hanging off, like showing my hat is brand spanking new. And it's just the perfect crescendo. Uh, we'll have all the links to all these episodes in the description if you guys want to check them out if you haven't seen them. But without spoiling the fun, it just gets more and more over the top as we go uh, between Key and Peel. <laughs> and it never fails to get a laugh, even when the skit itself has very little wording. It's great. <laughs> um, I actually just watched that skit for the first time recently, and I'm surprised I missed that one over the years because that is, one, it's funny, but two, I did not expect at all what it was going and how fast it escalates. Escalation is a good word to use because that's one of the things that they've kind of made their trademarks on. They usually start with like a simple premise 
and then just let things spiral out of control to a point that's either absurd or completely unexpected. This is a good idea of a very simple concept escalated to the point where it's absolutely ridiculous, but it's so hilarious. The best Key and Peele sketches we're able to accomplish is that kind of balance between things we've thought about before and things that would never, ever happen. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, even with the, the first brand new hat that comes up, even the one right after it, I was like, that's ridiculous. And then nothing could prepare me for what the next two things are. <laughs> right. I'd love to be a fly on the wall while they were writing these kind of sketches. You oh, know what yeah. I mean? It like, must have been a blast. Yeah. What about you, Andrew? <laughs> what would you say is your favorite? Well, I think, like, we were all thrown off guard when Get Out was as good as it was. But really, the signs were on the wall for the entire run of Key and Peele. Like, they made their entire careers off of not just funny, hilariously written, subversive sketches, but also really, really well shot, well made, well directed, beautifully executed. The reason that they're so funny is because of the contrast between the ridiculous escalation we were talking about and, like, the completely playing it straight. Oh, yeah. The best comedy usually is when they're not in on the joke. We're the ones in on the joke because of just how ridiculous it is in a familiar setting. And my favorite, personally, is rap album confession. Just confess, Conrack. Yeah, but you ain't got none. Oh. <laughs> you know, I'm actually, I'm very glad that you said that. I killed Darnell, yeah, I shot him with my knife. I shot him nine times, 9 p.m. on the dime. It's been seen by a lot of people. It's got 21 million views on YouTube, so I can't say it's, like, one of the under-the-radar ones. But it's, like, not one that a lot of people talk about, but it's so funny. <laughs> it's the typical bad cop interrogation of a possible murder suspect. And he's trying to get him to confess to a murder. Key is the person interviewing Peel, who's, like, the rapper. He's, like, a 2 chains rap figure. And basically, more and more clues come out that just <laughs> just escalate into the obvious and it's just exasperating for Key as he's not getting anything out of this guy. It's shot exactly as, like, CSI, like a show you would see <laughs> on CBS at 9 p.m. on a Wednesday. But at the same time, it's just the, the writing, each joke builds on the next, and it just crescendos in this perfect little epilogue. Nate was just watching it a couple minutes ago, and he, I could see what part he was on, and he was dying laughing. <laughs> like, it's that kind of stuff yeah. that was why Get Out was so successful. Yeah. Another cool little like hint at a great director hiding in the wings here was just the script writing and the plant and the payoff. You can tell that Key and Peele just had a story to tell within the first couple lyrics. And it's more than just, oh, here's a funny guy going to say a funny line. It's this guy is going to take you on the story of how he's going to get away with murder to the bullet points of being dragged down the hallway in the epilogue. Yeah. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is why Key and Peele were so popular. Not just because of the memeable moments. Like, obviously, Substitute Teacher is a big one. East-West Bowl is another one. The reason they were so popular is because they were on another level than, like, something even like Saturday Night Live, who, like, rarely hits this level of intelligence. And that's not a knock on Saturday Night Live. It's just talking about how good these two were and what they did. And they went out on top. Amen. Right. Saturday Night Live, you know, unacceptable, totally not funny. <laughs> <laughs> the Rap Confessions one is one that I've been familiar with for a while. And that one is, like Nate said about the dueling hats, Rap Confessions does make me laugh every single time. How ridiculous it is, the escalation, the writing, and like Andrew said, how serious they play it is just so funny. 
Mm. And I guess that that leaves me with one of my favorite skits by them. Uh, you know, forgive the language, but it's the one where they just kind of look around when they're talking about their wives and they go, bitch. Like last week, man, we going out to dinner, right? Mm-hmm. I'm like, where do you want to go? She's like, you decide. Uh-oh. I'm like, all right, Outback Steakhouse. She's like, nah, Daryl, I named seven more restaurants. No, Craig, no. I finally said Taylor's, the place I know she wants to go right. in the first place. Right, right. She looked at me, she said, if that's where you want to go. No, she didn't. Daryl, I looked my woman in the eye sockets. Mm-hmm. I told her straight mm-hmm. out. I just said it, man. I said, babe. Hey, guys. Hey, hey girl, how hey, you hey, doing? Hey, you, you having a good time? Having you seen the bedroom? Yeah, just... Basically, the premise is um, these two couples get together. You know, the two guys, Key and Peel, go out, and they want to talk amongst each other, and they kind of want to vent and get about, you know, talk about the fights that they might have had. And they were like, you know, she did this and she did that. And then they each turn around and make sure nobody's listening. And then they whisper, bitch. (laughs) Right. And it's super relatable, too. Again, the joke is not that they're saying bitch over and over again. The funniest part of the joke is that the idea of, like, masculine manly men who, like, really want to stand up for themselves, but they're so scared of their wives that that they will do anything to avoid it. It's so funny. And it's played out in other movies and TV shows before them. But their spin on it in their own skit was just like, hit it right on the head in the most perfect way. Right. It's body language. It's their tone. And <laughs> it's the freaking settings that they put yes. these characters in. <laughs> Where they end up. <laughs> perfect mix. 10 out of 10. <laughs> so obviously we're going to have a lot more to say about Jordan Peele later on when we talk about us. But for now, let's kind of go into a lot of big news this week. And this just in, a Newsbreak special report. I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. This was a really big couple of weeks in news, guys. There was a lot that I kind of posed to you guys that we could talk about that we just had to leave on the cutting room floor because there were other things. There's a new Troy Story 4 trailer out, of course, Avengers Endgame. Apple is joining the streaming wars, all that stuff. We're not even going to be able to talk about any of that. But we are going to talk about James Gunn. Now, of course, we first chronicled James Gunn's removal from Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 months ago when it first happened. It was a huge, huge story. James Gunn directed Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1 and Volume 2. He was originally fired off of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 after inappropriate tweets resurfaced from his past, tweets that Disney apparently was aware of when they originally hired him, but certain factions on the internet made it more widespread public and it ended up costing him his job. The cast was not very happy about this, most of them threatening to quit, especially Dave Bautista, who, of course, plays Drax the Destroyer. He was ready. He had one foot out the door. He was ready to follow James Gunn wherever he went. James Gunn, where he ended up going, was over to the competitor DC. Uh, He will be directing and writing The Suicide Squad, the sequel to Suicide Squad. But now we know, months ago, behind the scenes, after reconciliation between Disney and Gunn, he is back on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. He will be doing Guardians Volume 3 after The Suicide Squad is done, so that means we won't get a third film until probably in the 2022 to 2024 range, which seems like a while off, but it'll be here before you know it, really, in all honesty. But guys, this was a huge reversal, and I don't think any of us were really expecting this. What is your initial reaction to this, Nate? Honestly, I'm kind of surprised that we didn't see the signs sooner that Disney was going to reverse their decision. The other major, like, breakup we saw from the MCU was when Edgar Wright was taken off of the Ant-Man project, Mm -hmm. and they brought on Peyton Reed almost immediately afterward. 
So now we have Guardians of the Galaxy 3, which the first two did very, very well for Disney. And there was also internal reporting that Kevin Feige, the main man holding the MCU together, was really on James Gunn's side here. So I feel like Disney actually probably reversed their decision pretty quickly after they fired him. And just were kind of waiting for the PR to settle to bring him back on when it was a good time. I'm very happy that he is back on. The the whole scandal, quote unquote, was pretty ridiculous because A, he'd publicly apologized for those tweets a long time ago. B, Disney knew about them well before the public outcry, quote unquote, came out to fire him. And C, just people change. I think James Gunn apologized for the man that he was and did his penance and deserved a second chance here. Uh, this was a lot of public lynching before it was really necessary. And I'm glad that Disney reversed their decision here. The cast respects him. The other producers seem to respect him. So I think it's all in a good place. Jake? Yeah, I think it's the right move. Guardians of the Galaxy is so good because James Gunn is the mind is the mind behind it. That is not a movie that just anybody could direct. And both were successful both critically and financially because of, you know, the chemistry that the cast has and how good their director is being James Gunn. I don't know that there's anybody else who would have done a great job for Guardians 3 should they replace Gunn. See, so the, the tweets were, you know, not a long time ago, but not really recent either. Like Nate said, people change. He apologized for them. And he hasn't done or acted out in any similar behaviors like those tweets would suggest. Now, if he had said or done something in very recent times that were similar to the tweets, I'd say maybe he's not so changed. I can kind of get it. I think it's just, I think it's the right move. He belongs on that set with everybody else. And the cast shows. I don't think we've ever seen, or at least not in a long time, seen a cast be so vocal about wanting their director. Otherwise, they, they won't feel comfortable with anybody else. And that really says a lot. Right. And you could just see the hesitance from other directors when their names were floated around in the rumor mill as being people that could replace him. People kept asking over and over again of Taika Waititi if he was going to be the one to take over. Of course, Taika Waititi, who did Thor Ragnarok. And he was very much like, I don't want any part of this. You know what I mean? It is such James Gunn's story up to this point. And you can see a lot of his emotions, especially in the second one, that, like, you're right. It would have felt naked and weird to have somebody else try to imitate that style, especially if they were going to use his script. Because right. that would have been really weird. Yeah. I mean, they did that with Edgar Wright, but Ant-Man is not really an emotional movie. You know what I mean? Like, the Guardians mm. movies are about family. Fast and Furious style, baby. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like Dom Toretto. But I think everybody wins here. Obviously, James Gunn wins because he's back on the project. Marvel wins because they get their director back. Disney wins because they look good. And DC wins because they get to keep him for the Suicide Squad. Like, that was the big thing for me. I thought he was ditching that project to come over. But no, they get to keep him. So we get a probably really good DC James Gunn movie. And of course, we get another Guardians movie. As a superhero fan, there is nothing here to be annoyed about. Well, I'm sure somebody will find something, but... <laughs> right. Anyway, James Gunn back on board. Very excited about that. From one really talented director to another. Two very different directors. Very. Christopher Nolan, last we left him, made what is my opinion the best movie of 2017 with Dunkirk. I know you guys enjoyed it as well. Anytime Christopher Nolan makes a movie, it's an event. And literally his upcoming next project, which comes out in July of 2020, is being described as an event film. We don't really know 
what that means. Nate thought that was the title for a little bit. <laughs> Honestly. That, yeah, that's been <laughs> clarified. But we do know who will be starring in the film, and it's a eclectic trio that he's cast in it so far. The lead role, Nolan's first African-American lead, John David Washington, Denzel's child, of course, the star of Black Klansman, a very talented young actor. And joining him is Elizabeth Debicki, who, going back to James Gunn, most people probably know her best as the leader of the Golden Faction in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. She also did a great job in last year's Widows with Steve McQueen, another great director. And Robert Pattinson, who a lot of people might have like an allergic reaction to when you say that name, just because <laughs> of his Edward Cullen work. But the man is a good actor. Most notably recently, he did a movie called Good Time, which set the indie world on fire in 2017. So three very different actors cast with Christopher Nolan. We don't really have an idea, like I said, of what the movie is. It could be something sci-fi related. There's also some rumors there's romance mixed in. What we know so far, Jake, what do you think? It's hard to pick and pinpoint a favorite director, but Christopher Nolan is absolutely one of my top. Pretty sure I've seen everything he's ever done, which is one of the few directors I can actually say that for. And his, for me, his worst movie is still pretty good. Let's think about this for a second. For a trailer, you could put from Christopher Nolan, the mind behind, and put almost any movie that he's done next to it, and people will go, ooh. Eh, people will be like, that's a little weird they put Insomnia, but yes. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> oh, I said almost. So that being said, ever since he did the Dark Knight trilogy into Interstellar, I was like, I will go see anything this man does. He reaffirmed it with Dunkirk, and I've just been anxiously waiting for him to announce another project. So now that he has, I'm like, rejoice. Thank God. I can't wait to see what this guy does next. One of the most brilliant minds working today, in my opinion. And I like that he's getting, you know, not unheard of talent, but unique talent, different talent. Like he got uh, Harry Styles in Dunkirk. Uh, yes. Well, what is that about? I don't know, but it worked. So whatever he wants to do with whoever he wants to do it with, I'm down. I'm going to go see it. I don't care what it's about. <laughs> Nate, you've got Christopher Nolan all up in your top 15, top 20. So go ahead. Yeah. So many of my favorite movies are from Christopher Nolan. You don't even need to say Christopher Nolan, director of, in a trailer for me. You just need to put his name, and I'm already ordered the tickets twice. Right. <laughs> I love Prestige. I love Inception. Memento is my favorite movie of all time. That's all Nolan. So whatever he does for his next project, I'm game. I love his hiring of John David Washington here. I think that is a really cool new talent, because I really liked what he did in Black Landsman. And if there's anyone who knows how to manipulate a cast into uh, an incredibly unique film, it's Christopher Nolan. Just, like, uh, look at what he did with The Dark Knight and Heath Ledger. Like, obviously, the actor has a lot to do with it, and I think Christopher Nolan is just really good at drawing the best features from his actors. I can't say I've ever been unhappy with one of his casting decisions. So, very excited for this. I just need a little bit more of what the movie's about, though. Like, <laughs> I remember getting so hyped just from the poster of Interstellar. Even if I just see a font. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. That's going to get my hype going for the next year and a half. Yeah. <laughs> just give me something, Nolan. <laughs> it really doesn't take a lot with Nolan. Like, honestly, the font example's a really good one. But, like, even just, like, you can tell what a Christopher Nolan score sounds like. Mm. Look at one image from a Christopher Nolan movie and be like, you need to see that on a freaking planetarium. <laughs> the man just knows how to make massive movies. And you're right. He casts things really, really well. And he makes great discoveries. Like, I'm hoping this movie 
catapults both John David Washington and Elizabeth Debicki into the next stratosphere. Well, I was going to say, that's that's huge for both their careers, working with a guy like Nolan. Right. A lot of people are going to go see this movie, whatever it is. They were both already highlights with huge auteur directors before this. And I'm hoping, for Robert Pattinson's sake, that this is the mainstream revitalization that he finally deserves. And if James Gunn can get a redemption, so can Robert Pattinson. Right, exactly. <laughs> he has been working his butt off to kind of shake off the Edward Cullen stench for years now. He's really funny when he talks about it, actually. Right, he hated that experience. <laughs> yeah, he, he rips on it better than anybody else does. It's really funny. Right, but he's been working almost exclusively with, like, David Cronenberg and uh, James Gray and David Mashad, these indie directors that are, like, trying to get the most visceral performances out of him. And it's paying off. It is. He's developed street cred, finally, as an actor. And that will hopefully translate into a really strong performance here. So yeah, I couldn't I couldn't be more happy with these three choices here. I think these are three really good actors that could really be primed for a career explosion, and I'd be happy for all three of them it did. So we'll find out more as the year goes along. July 17th, 2020. This summer, another movie by a great director with a lot of talented actors coming out. We got our first glimpse this week. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Here's the first trailer. So, Rick, uh, explain to the audience exactly what it is a stunt double does. Actors are required to do a, a lot of dangerous stuff. Cliff here is meant to help carry the load. Is that uh, how you describe your job, Cliff? What, carrying his load? Yeah, it's about right. My hands are registered as lethal weapons. We get into a fight, I accidentally kill you, I go to jail. Anybody accidentally kills anybody in a fight, they go to jail. It's called manslaughter. That was the best acting I've ever seen in my whole life. Like you. Rick fucking no. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the ninth film by... Quentin Tarantino, and supposedly the second to last, but I don't know about that. Anyway, his first since Hateful Eight in 2015. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, his first collaboration with Al Pacino, Luke Perry, Dakota Fanning, Timothy Oliphant, Tim Roth, and a bunch of other people. It takes place in the 1960s, mixes a beautiful Hollywood fantasy with the gruesome Charles Manson murders, of course, infamous from back in the day. Margot Robbie even playing Sharon Tate. It's due out this July, July 26th. It's Tarantino's first summer movie since Inglorious Bastards back in 2009. So guys, obviously, in our top five, if not top three most anticipated movies of the year, I would say that's pretty a safe bet for all of us. Tarantino, mm -hmm. another director we're looking forward to, anything he touches. What do we think of this initial 90 seconds to 120 seconds? Nate? This looks really fun. And it also doesn't look like a Tarantino movie right now. Like, granted, as soon as we get to the murder sections, that might change, and we'll get the classic Tarantino that everyone knows, um, not necessarily loves or hates, but <laughs> definitely knows. But this looks very tame for the moment, which I find fascinating. The most reference we get to blood in this trailer is that hilarious joke with Bruce Lee in that fight scene there. Casting alone, I think this blows Nolan's announcement out of the water. There are a lot of big names on this list. And a lot of ones that I would love to see in more movies. I haven't seen a Brad Pitt movie in a long time. Uh, Margot Robbie's obviously awesome. And that you can't go wrong with Leo. Ever. 
Yeah. <laughs> I just realized it's Leo and Margot back together. I don't know it's, why I never put that together. <laughs> and this is Leo's first performance since his Oscar, right? Yeah, he picks very sparingly. It's almost been four years. Very nice. He's taking a long nap off. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't I don't blame him. Um, so yeah, we just talked about Christopher Nolan, one of my favorite directors. And if I had to pick a favorite, it's probably Tarantino. So I'm very hyped to be talking about these three news stories today. Yeah, Tarantino, again, one of the people that I've seen pretty much everything he's done. And my least favorite movie of his is still like a 7 out of 10. Like everything he does, I will watch and again and again and again. So Nate's favorite movies by Christopher Nolan Memento. My favorite movie is Pulp Fiction by Tarantino. And it's been said that this movie is supposed to be kind of his closest work to Pulp Fiction. And based on what I've gathered, it sounds like he's mixing and kind of changing history a little bit, like in Glorious Bastards, kind of creating this weird, you know, timeline of events like he did in Pulp Fiction. He's just going to kind of mix them together and see what the hell happens. And I can't wait. The cast is amazing. Everything Tarantino touches, I'm going to go see and to some extent enjoy. And even the, the trailer, we have an idea of what it's about because we've read about it. But if you had no idea and you just saw the trailer, you really don't know what right. the movie's about. And it still looks great. Honestly, it's a perfect teaser in that department because we always oh, talk yeah. about how good trailers need to be about getting you excited but also pulling mm-hmm. back. And this this has a really good balance of both. Jake, I think it's interesting that you kind of make the comparison to Pulp Fiction. Does it feel like that Tarantino here in the twi- the supposed twilight of his career – I'm qualifying that every time I talk about it because I do not believe him. But – doesn't it feel interesting that he's kind of going through the motions again of his career? Because it doesn't it feel like Hateful Eight was very much a Reservoir Dogs style bottle film on steroids. Mm-hmm. That was his last movie. Now, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood will probably be something similar to Pulp Fiction where it takes all these uh, different stories and intersects them. And then his 10th movie is going to be Kill Bill Volume 3. <laughs> I don't know what the hell that would be about. But. Jackie Brown 2. <laughs> something like that. Yeah, that would be something. This this is a great trailer. It's a yeah, really, I've, I've really watched it a couple trailer. times, and I, I love Leo at the end when the little girl tells him how good of an actor he is. I love That's Brad Pitt's joke. Leo and, and Brad Pitt, both of them get two great moments. Leo has that moment at the end, and Leo has the moment where he's oh, like yeah. dancing on the daytime talk show, which is going to be a gif. It's going to replace the one from Wolf of Wall Street where he's dancing at the wedding. For <laughs> yeah, this is going to go down. It's that little shimmy that he does. It's going to go down in gif <laughs> history. And then Brad Pitt has a great line at the beginning where he makes like an inappropriate sexual comment. And then he also <laughs> he explains to that Bruce Lee impersonator who, oh, my God, did they just resurrect Bruce Lee? Probably. <laughs> Goodness. But basically, he has the Peter Dinklage line from Avengers Infinity War. Like, yes, that's what murder and killing you means. Like, <laughs> You know what's funny? I'm assuming I'm not the only one, but I knew exactly where that joke was going. Like, oh, if I kill you with, with my bare hands, I go to jail. Like, you know where it's going. And it still makes me laugh. It's just a good setup and delivery. You know why? Because that little pan with the camera is, like, perfect. <laughs> yeah. He's just sitting on a truck holding, like, a milk carton. That's the thing about Quentin Tarantino. Going back to what we were talking about with Jordan Peele earlier, it's not just jokes and it's not just stylized violence. He is a master of crafting this and making it work. And that's why I'm so excited for this, because he's kind of getting into that fun element again. I'm so glad he's back. I will say, if I have one reservation, it's the whole manipulation of history thing. Like, the Charles Manson murders were gruesome and really tragic. And I mean, not that the Civil War in World War II wasn't, but there are specific victims to this Charles Manson thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you can do a revenge fantasy in the Civil War because 
I mean, not to be like that, but like thousands of people died. There's not one specific person you're going to piss off. This is more personal. Right. Like imagine being one of the victims of Charles Manson or like knowing a victim of Charles Manson. Right. You hope Tarantino knows how to handle exactly. it. Exactly. I'm afraid this might be a little distasteful. That's the only thing that I'm not excited for in this movie that comes out in July. Now let's just get the posters up to snuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That'll do it for our news segment this week. Let's move into our main review of Jordan Peele's Us. Can't believe how big Dave got. Did you hear Gabe got a boat? Where's Jason? 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 Where were you? There's a family in our driveway. It's probably the neighbors. Zora. Put your shoes on. If you want to get crazy, we can get crazy. What are you people? It's us. They look exactly like us. They think like us. They won't stop until they kill us. That was the trailer for Us. It's the second film made by Academy Award-winning Jordan Peele, who, of course, he broke into the scene with 2017's Get Out, which, of course, won him the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. The movie was nominated for Best Picture. It, like, more than tripled its budget at the box office. It was a huge hit, and he's returned with a highly anticipated follow-up. This follow-up follows a family of four who are traveling to their beach house in Santa Cruz, California. There's the dorky dad joke-spitting Gabe Wilson, played by Winston Duke of M'Baku from Black Panther fame. His reserved by tender wife Adelaide, who of course is played by his Black Panther co-star and another Academy Award winner, Lupita Nyong'o. They have a track star teenage daughter Zora, played by Shahadi Wright-Joseph, and a gorilla mask-wearing son Jason, played by Evan Alex. Adelaide is uneasy about the trip for reasons better left unknown as we build the suspense of the movie. Her suspicions are confirmed correct in ways that are probably worse than she ever imagined. In the middle of the night, they are ambushed by four intruders, red jumpsuit doppelganger for each member of the family, staring them back in the face. They clearly want to hurt them. We don't know why, but we just know that the Wilsons need to survive and figure out what the hell is going on. And guys, that was a lot of people's reactions leaving Get Out. What the hell? That was so good. That was awesome. And also, like, what the hell? That was really messed up. So a lot of people are looking forward to seeing what Jordan Peele has next in store. Of course, we have been, ever since they announced this project, ever since they announced who's going to be acting in it, when the trailer dropped on Christmas, it was probably the best Christmas gift I got this year. Does it deliver? Jake Hensler, what do you think of us? Truthfully, I think this movie is a bit tricky to talk about without spoilers, because a lot of the most fascinating parts are spoilers. But I will say, yeah, I think this movie delivered. I think it's pretty much comparable to Get Out. Borderline loving it. I think it's a great follow-up to Get Out. And I think Peel is absolutely cementing himself as one of the better, not only filmmakers, but original filmmakers working today. He is just a natural for suspense and mystery and thrill and good stuff that you want to see in a you know scary movie. Not that this was so scary in my opinion, but it was definitely suspenseful, interesting, mysterious. Not quite a complete movie. I can't quite pinpoint it. Something about Get Out feels a little more put together, a little more complete. 
but the finale of us, what he tries to get at and what I think he personally accomplishes, the more I sit with it, the more I'm enjoying it. And I think I will very much enjoy this uh, on rewatches as well. I'm very curious to see how it holds up and honestly what he does next. I really, really enjoyed myself with this movie. Right. And Jake brings up a, a good point about, you know, it's hard to talk about without spoiling this movie. We want to kind of make things clear to our audience here. We're going to have to be pretty vague about this because there yeah. are so many different surprises layered throughout this that we do not want to give anything away. So we probably won't be going into much more detail than what I just said in the plot synopsis. Having said that, Nate, what do you think of us? Can I just make a request Stop making all these critically acclaimed horror movies so I can stop <laughs> reviewing them. We're in a weird golden age of horror where Nate can't even escape. I'm so happy about it. I'm going to let you guys in on my horror watching strategy, if you will. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because I am such a wuss. I get so worked up going to see these movies. I usually get maybe one snack if I'm feeling it for the movie theater. When I do horror movies, I have to have an entire buffet counter of smorgasbord. <laughs> One has to be spicy so that way I can like remember that I am a real person in a movie theater <laughs> and <laughs> this is the worst pain that I'm going to experience watching this movie is eating something spicy. One is sweet to calm me down so it just keeps going and lasts me through the movie. I love you. I cannot get through a horror movie by myself. <laughs> I love you. That spicy thing is crazy. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. I love quirks like that about people. That's so good. So for yes, if anybody is on the fence, um, like really liked Get Out like I did, this movie definitely is still worth your time. It's a good film, but it is much more horror oriented than Get Out was. Get Out definitely yeah. leaned more thriller than horror. Yeah. The first like 30, 45 minutes of this movie was pretty rough for me to get to. There are a lot of scares, not a lot of jump scares, but just a lot of scares. And <laughs> it's the kind of stuff that, you know, I need a nightlight for. But again, I'm a wuss. More cultured horror fans are definitely going to have an easier time than me. In terms of the actual movie itself, phenomenal performances, uh, especially Lupita Nyong'o. She slays this movie yeah 100 amazing amazing work winston duke took me by surprise you get a sense of who his character is from the trailers but he's not the kind of character that it gets old after a while either the kids do really really well too if anything they're a little quieter but that just kind of comes with the field that these characters need to navigate to try to survive this movie yeah peel delivers he is a really unique mind um, and he's creating some really cool original stories that we have not seen before i think as nuanced as moviegoers as we are we go to a lot of movies we watch a lot of movies even if it's just in the comfort of our own home i think it's probably safe to say that for maybe like 85 percent of them we kind of have an idea of like our thoughts on the movie within like an hour or two am i wrong in saying that guys like you know what i mean yeah. like yeah we have a general sense of what we think about it and how much we like it. There's that other 15% that make this job so fun. You know what I mean? Those are the movies that are like the challenging ones. It's the ones where you have to think a long time. And sometimes you even decide that you don't like it. And that's okay. That's what makes cinema really interesting beyond the obvious entertainment impact. Kind of Jake alluded to this earlier and I agree with him on this. Get Out has like an immediate satisfaction walking out of it. 
because you understand the allegory that he's trying to go for there, the African-American's nightmare in that situation, it's pretty obvious. It's overt on purpose. You're supposed to understand that this is a metaphor for racism. It's more of a punch in the gut right off the bat. And it's a really entertaining, great classic, probably future classic movie because of that. Us takes a little bit more time to understand what he's trying to do. And that's not a bad thing. Even if that's not all landing right away, this movie's extremely entertaining because it's clear how smart Jordan Peele is as a filmmaker, how in touch he is both with society and with pop culture and how he weaves that all together. This movie mixes influences like I've never seen before. Yeah. I never thought I would say the sentences Invasions of the Body Snatchers and National Lampoon's Vacation in the same sentence. But like, (laughs) Nate, you took the word smorgasbord out of my mouth because in a different context, in a much different context. (laughs) Very. It's a smorgasbord of all these different pop culture cues and references mixed together with something really disturbing and frightening and insidious to say about our society and us as people. And... That kind of intellectual thinking with filmmaking is what makes Jordan Peele so special. It's not just the fact that he can balance horror and comedy. He makes you sit down and think for several days afterwards. So I don't know if I would say that I adore Us, but I really, 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 really like it. I think I like Get Out a little bit more. I've seen Us twice now. Jesus. (laughs) There are minor bones to pick with it that I didn't have as much with with Get Out. There are little small things throughout that I just could nitpick with us that kind of puts it a little bit below where that film was. But man, it is another excellent genre-based societal horror fright fest. It's just great. Yeah, I'm I'm very happy with how this came out. <laughs> yes, me too. Truthfully. There's always the, the talk of the sophomore slump, and he he's nowhere near it. Completely missed it. <laughs> Completely firing on all cylinders here. And again, like you guys said, getting great performances out of his actors. Like Lapita, holy crap. Like Lapita Nyong'o, she already won an Oscar, so she had nothing to prove to any of us. But even so, (laughs) she crafts two possibly classic characters in this thing. Exactly. She's two characters, but they're completely different characters. And they're both great. It's unbelievable. If Kaluuya can get nominated for Get Out, which I was fine with, she should absolutely be nominated for this. I don't see why not. Yeah. I thought she was outstanding. Yeah. Winston Duke, he's kind of filling the Lowell Howery audience surrogate mode at a lot of points, but there's more to his character than that. He's not too in-your-face dad jokey, but he's just a good balance of it with also mm-hmm. like, oh my God, my family's in trouble. Right, and the jokes aren't in like two inappropriate places. Like when he needs to be scared, he's scared. You know what I mean? It's not right, like- Absolutely. We kind, of, we kind of gripe the Marvel movies sometimes with that where they kind of- put jokes in inappropriate places just for the sake of a joke. This movie knows when to be scary and when to be funny. Mm-hmm. That's that's important. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, I can't wait to revisit this movie. It's because it's us is not as obvious. Like I went with a group of about nine people and a few of us got it. A few of us didn't. And we all had a pretty decent conversation on what we thought Peel was getting at and what actually happened and what this meant and all the, the mind games and psychological elements to it. And I... I had a ball, honestly, just talking about it. Talking about it now, I'm so excited to keep talking about this. Having seen it twice, like I said, this is a movie that should be mandatory. I'm sorry, Nate. You're going to have to sit down and watch this again. I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, I know. (laughs) Jake and I had a discussion, and he got to places that I didn't get to the first time. And that's okay, because then I went back with that knowledge, 
And I've got a lot of those symbolic things to talk about in spoilers. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why, like, basically all spoilers. Right. So let's just go there now. We're going to get into our ratings first for us. If we think a movie is absolutely perfect, has no flaws, we give it a royal throne. If we think a movie is really, really great but has a couple of minor things we'd like to change, we give it a plus recliner. If a movie is awesome but has, like, some pretty fatal flaws in it, like a more of a mixed bag, we give it a wooden seat. If a movie's not awesome but it has a couple of good things, we give it a damp lawn chair. And if a movie is completely awful with no redeeming qualities, we give it a sleazy outhouse. And if we think a movie should be seen in the theaters with an audience, we give it a little bag of popcorn moniker or a smorgasbord of popcorn <laughs> for some of us. Yeah. <laughs> so, Mr. Smorgasbord, what did you think of us? Give it just your rating. I definitely think that Get Out was a more polished product from Jordan Peele. That said, this movie is a lot more experimental. And I think, honestly, it, parts of it are a lot more fun because of just how out there it is. There's definitely some things I want to talk about spoiler-wise that not so much gripes, not so much issues, but definitely just little things that made me think, hmm, in a critical sense rather than a I don't get what's going on sense. So I'm going to stick with a plush recliner on this one. Uh, Definitely recommend it. But if you're not a horror fan, you just got to mentally prepare for the first first half of this movie for sure. But on performances alone, uh, makes for a unique experience that I don't think you're going to get from any other movie. So definitely recommended it. Definitely looking forward to the next projects from Jordan Peele. I appreciate him having a little bit of humor in for me to kind of just diffuse the situation and let me <laughs> <laughs> let me like stop the jitters. <laughs> I had the the pleasure of seeing this in Harlem where I had a wonderful audience that really liked all the jokes <laughs> and that helped me remember that hey, I'm in a movie theater supposed to be having a good, good time. And I did. <laughs> hmm. So, in your case, see it with a support group. Support group, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Jake? Um, Actually, yeah, I saw it with, like I said, a few friends. And one of them, during the initial, it's not a spoiler, during the initial home invasion scene, one of my friends from Two Seats Down went, Jake, I hate you. I was like, good. It means the movie's having an effect. Yeah, this, uh, I would say bag of popcorn moniker because this is a good movie, an intense movie. You should see it on the big screen. And audience members, like there were definitely some, ooh, what are you doing? Oh my God, get the hell out. And the jokes were also laugh worthy. Just generally worth seeing in theaters, but as far as rating goes, I'm I'm teetering. It's not a perfect movie, but what it does, it does really well. And honestly, I I connected with this movie on a psychological level in a way I did not expect. And I think it will benefit from rewatches. For now, because it's not quite perfect, I think I am gonna go like the highest end plush recliner, but it's got potential for Royal Throne. It's it's close for me, truthfully. It's really close. Wow. Well, I'm kind of glad that we're all on the same page that we really like this movie because it's going to be exhausting enough to talk about the symbolism. I, I don't want to be arguing with you guys, too. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of it's going to have to go towards the specific intricacies and the theories that we yeah. have. This movie is it hits it out of the park like there's no other way to really say it. It's so intelligent. It's so creepy. It's just such a memorable, interesting piece of art beyond just like a really great, entertaining, fun time at the movies. It doesn't have the immediate satisfaction of Get Out. Get Out, you can tell this movie will have instant classic recognizability across millions of people. Everybody connected with Get Out on some kind of level. Some people will be alienated by us because you spend a lot of the time wondering, really, what's happening. 
at least the first time through, and that kind of lessens the entertainment impact of points. Uh, there's also some story choices that we'll get into that I just think they could have found a different way to do it, and for that, it's not quite as good as his first effort. However, this is a great movie, without a doubt. Yeah. It's a plush recliner worth sharing with a twin. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, it's a big enough plush recliner that you can sort It's a couch. Yeah. That's a couch. <laughs> there you go. So three plush recliners with a couple of people teetering a little higher. Interesting. We've got a lot to talk about. If you have not seen us, please do not join us in the spoiler section. Like, you probably shouldn't even watch the trailers at this point. Like, just go see the movie. Yeah. If you have seen us, hopefully you have, join us in our spoiler section. Whoa! Oh, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Excuse me, spoiler alert! So we'll get into the minutia of all the little symbolism things in here, but Jake, just generally, what is this movie about? So from from my takeaway, after sitting with from a couple days, all of us have a dark side, or as us calls it, a shadow side. Parts of us we don't like, we don't want to acknowledge, we don't want to address. Uh, there's also parts of us that could be traumatized or anxious or depressed, and we suppress them downwards. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to talk about it. Those memories can get suppressed and you, your brain can shut them out and not talk about it. Everybody's got sides of them that have to do with this, whether severe or not. And us kind of tackles that on a very personal and yet large scale at the same time. So the family trying to kill them is supposed to be semi their darker sides coming out. The movie reveals to us that everybody has one. What you kind of have to go along with is that they are living in these thousands of miles of tunnels underground. That's where it gets Hitchcockian. If you can go with that, excellent. You're going to have no problem. But they all come out and they're all the darker sides of us living underground. They're trying to come out and kill us and replace us. And at the end of the movie, it is said that they are literally touching arms and spreading across the country, which I think Peel is saying, whether you're Republican, Democrat, hard left, hard right, all of us are a little on edge at this crazy time in the country. And a lot of people's edginess and darker sides can be coming out. And we all have sides that we have that we don't like, we don't want to look at. And I think that's, in a nutshell, kind of what he's getting at. That's what I got from a psychological metaphor. Right. I was there with you when I first saw the movie on the micro level. The idea of our own insecurities and our own vices coming back to literally kill us and destroy us. Right. So I should have put this together because there's a direct line where Lupita Nyong'o's yeah. <laughs> alter ego, Red, goes, we are America. And I was like, that's kind of weird. What are we talking yeah, about? Yeah, literally here? everybody in the theater <laughs> went, what? <laughs> yeah. I was like, that that was kind of out but of place. But it adds up. But like, that's as overt as it could possibly get. This is fascinating to me because I get those themes are in there. But the main takeaway that I got out of this was more about like class struggles a whole theme throughout this entire movie is uh, wealth versus poverty. You know, mm. like the main family we follow is decidedly middle class mm -hmm. and they're trying to impress the higher class family. Right, Elizabeth Moss's character and stuff. And yeah. you could argue that the entire underground is the lower class. And you could say the sea to shining sea moment is the fact that a large chunk of the people in the U.S. are l dealing with poverty and literally resorting to violence to get out of poverty. I think there's a lot to unpack there. That, that checks out, too. That's fascinating, too, because it works on the doppelganger level, but it also works with the main characters. Like, Winston Duke and Lupita Nyong'o are clearly 
just friends with Elizabeth Moss's character and Tim Heidecker's mm-hmm. characters just because they've been Even friends. hesitantly friends. They're not, like, exactly. great Exactly. It's a passive-aggressive thing. It's a black family, a middle-class black family with a clearly rich white family. And the white family at points is shoving things in their face, not even meaning to be. I got some work done. Right. Right. Elizabeth Moss's character talking about her plastic surgery. Winston Duke talking about how Tim Heidecker's character was kind of shoving their new car in their face. That works on multiple levels. Mm -hmm. But I never went there. You know what I mean? I thought about it when we actually see their house. I never went there as far as the metaphor goes. I stuck more to what Jake was talking about with the symbolism of the duality. You know what's interesting that that I took out of uh, the higher end family? For me, I got out of that was they struggled to defeat their own counterparts. Like they were faced with running and, you know, they're handcuffed to tables at first. They're chased down at first. They're handicapped at first. But when it comes to facing the white family's counterparts, they kind of deal with them and handle them no problem. So what I got out of that is it's hard to look inward and look at our own negative self-traits and our own negative qualities, but we can pinpoint them in other people, no problem. It's easy to judge others. And rip people apart, no problem. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's easy to judge others. So for them, killing the white family's counterparts and struggling to kill their own, that's where I went with that. But honestly, everything that you said, Nate, checks out as well. What a complex story. Yeah. We all have these different perspectives. Knowing what the movie was about, going in a second time, the moments of symbolism, he threads these things so beautifully. There's holding hands, the hands across America thing, of course, that's the big, right. powerful final image, but it's throughout the entire movie. Obviously, it's the first thing we see on TV. Yep. That beautiful first push mm-hmm. into the TV. It's on the back of their car when they're driving. When she's yep. at child therapy, she's putting these animals together in a row. The mom and dad at child therapy don't hold hands. Like, he reaches for it, she pulls away. There's a painting on Jason's wall with them holding hands. Jason and Adelaide's thing to do is to hold hands to calm each other down. Yeah, Jesus. Like, it's it's just nonstop when you're like, oh my God. Like, he did did this. (laughs) Yeah, and this is why the things like that is where I'm teetering on a royal throne. Because I don't think it's perfect, but man, does he accomplish a lot. Let's get a little bit more, more general, more macro here, if you will. What do we think about the main twist that... Uh, Adelaide and Red have switched places and have been living each other's lives. I was iffy at first, but after kind of sitting with it for a bit, I I like it. I think it checks out to what you were saying, Jake, about the PTSD and the repression thing. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I was iffy at first, but then once I started thinking about it more, I was like, actually, no, that really, that works out. Me too. Like, the first time, again, the first time I saw it, I was like, I don't know about this. And then, again, when you go back and revisit it, it's perfect. It makes so much sense. My biggest quirk with the movie, if you will, just imagine that this was a sci-fi movie instead of a horror movie. I feel like as an audience, we'd want more explanation into why did the government make these body doubles? Why is only Lapita Nyong'o's character properly tethered where they could actually both have their own souls rather than be puppets like all the other doppelgangers had? The little kid, Jason, his doppelganger literally mirrors him whenever he wants to when the other doppelgangers don't and they kill their masters, so to speak. There's a lot of those kinds of choices throughout the movie that if this was a sci-fi movie, I feel like the audience wouldn't let it get away. But because it's a horror movie and the audience is kind of supposed to be afraid of the unknown and not understand the rules, especially for the first half of the movie, but even toward the the finale of the movie to not fully understand what's going on. I don't know if that's Jordan Peele taking advantage of the genre 
and saying, I don't have to explain this because it's a horror movie. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I can see what you're saying there because I had those moments at points, especially in that big moment you're talking about where Jason's able to take out Pluto by just making him walk backwards. But yet we've never really seen that with any of the other doppelgangers. Mm-hmm. So there's like inconsistencies like that that are throughout it that I kind of just went with. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think you can because it's a horror movie. And that's why I'm not trying to qualify it as a mistake on the movie or right. a laziness on Jordan Peele's side. I just think it's interesting that the genre changes how the audience reacts to those kinds of inconsistencies. Mm, I, I noticed some of that too. Like we do just kind of have to believe that there are millions of clones living underground that are connected to us somehow just because. Right. I've also thought that kind of idea is more accepted back when Hitchcock was popular. Like nowadays, that stuff doesn't sit as well with audiences. We want more explanations. Where back then, we would just go, wow, how crazy is that? Mm -hmm. So I think if you can tap into the old mindset and just kind of go, okay, maybe I don't quite get everything. Maybe not everything has an explanation, but this all still checks out. You'll go with the movie better. Right. I don't necessarily have all the answers either. Why certain ones act the way that they do versus others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't really have an answer for it per se. So I I didn't have too much of a gripe with that. If I had one big problem with the movie, and I wouldn't even call it a huge problem, I thought that the storytelling in the second act gets really repetitive. Like, so for the first part, we have the home invasion. Winston Duke's doppelganger takes him out on the boat. Lapita's doppelganger handcuffs hurts, and then the kids are left to fend for themselves. Then they go to the White family's house. Lapita gets handcuffed again. Winston Duke ends up on a boat again with a doppelganger, and the kids are left to fend for themselves. Like, that repetition right there, I was like, didn't we just do this? How do we have two separate boat sequences? Mm. I just wish there was a little bit more variety there. Because that also leads to one of my favorite segments in the film, which is the fuck the police segment. (laughs) That sequence and the use of music in that sequence, which I think there's symbolism in the use of songs that they pick, good vibrations, very white song the murder anthem for these white characters versus fuck the police, which is, of course, a big black empowerment anthem, which is like the police ain't coming. Put this matter into your home hands and take control. Yeah, that was a fun moment. Yeah, that was probably my favorite sequence of the film. But I just thought like the way we got there was a little bit like deja vu. I actually didn't think about that. Part of me says I wonder if there's just a reason we're missing. And part of me wonders if that's just how we wanted it. And there is no reason. You know, I'm not sure. Mm hmm. Because there are so many very particular details that make me go, maybe he did have a reason that I'm not catching, or maybe maybe it's not. I don't know. I kind of want to talk a little bit about cinematography of mirrors and glass and stuff like that, because we talk about self-reflection. And this, again, this is all throughout it. We have, obviously, the first shot with the TV, shots through car windows. The House of Mirrors. Yeah, the House of Mirrors is the most obvious one. Uh, the, the mirror down in the dance studio, Lapita's big monologue before all the stuff goes down where she's just facing into the reflection. Yeah. That shot up close with Lapita's doppelganger as she approaches slowly. That was a really like a weird out of focus shot where Lapita's doppelganger's oh. right there. Just creativity through filmmaking is so fascinating here. After this movie, I've just seen Get Out and Us now. I would love to sit down and have a beer with Jordan Peele and be like, all right, you're smarter than people think. What's going on with your head? What's in there? (laughs) It's crazy that just because he came from comedy, people are assuming that he's not an artist. And if anything, he's more of it because you have to land your punches so much more timely with comedy than any other kind of movie. Like in a drama, your actor just needs to say his line correctly. And as long as he follows the script, he's good. 
with comedy, you have to time that. With horror, you have to time right. that. Horror is all yeah, about yeah. timing with jump scares. Yeah. yeah. Slowly escalating tension. There's a lot of that in this movie. Like the whole oh, yeah. the whole final battle is just tension. Basically from the first breaking and entering scene, it's just it's tense to some mm. extent. Yeah. That fi- that final those final moments with Lapita and her doppelganger. It's like one long ballet. They were going for that, obviously. <laughs> but they set up the dance metaphor, yeah. and then the music just takes them back and forth. I just love the way the whole thing was choreographed. There's a lot of symbolism in this movie altogether. When she is trying to finally kill her red doppelganger for kidnapping the son, she's just barely missing, swinging and missing, swinging and missing, swinging and missing, over and over and over again. And I actually thought that's that's not just nothing. And I, th- I think that was him saying... You know, we can often try and look look inward. The solution to our problem or solution to PTSD or, you know, whatever negative trait we have about us that we don't want to see could be right in front of us the whole time. And we'll swing and miss and swing and miss over and over again. I think it's no coincidence that each person kills their own doppelganger. Like nobody steps in and takes out the other one. Yes, absolutely. Truthfully, I think there's something to be said about the parental roles. Like when Lupita is a little girl in the beginning, her parents are clearly just not great parents. The dad is, you know, not exactly sober, not paying attention. The mom is just nagging him the whole time and mad about the relationship. She blames him for her PTSD. He doesn't take the responsibility. The moment at the end where Lupita's character remembers that she was switched and the PTSD kicks in and she solves it, her son, Jason, looks up at her as if he realizes. And I think that's supposed to be carried on. Like her parents weren't exactly great with her, even though they might've tried. She got PTSD she did everything she could have to save her son, and ultimately, he killed his own version of himself. That kid's going to have PTSD as well. I think he's kind of getting... And was abducted by his right, mother. Right, <laughs> right. no yeah. matter how much they wanted to try and save and care for their child, learned behaviors and DNA will be inherited if you want to get hereditary about it. Or hmm. even the fact hmm. that just mental illnesses affect everyone in the family. <laughs> yeah, that like that way too. I think that was definitely uh, something to be said in the end hmm. when the, when Jason looks up at her. Like, I had, in a good way, I had, like, a psychological field deal with this over the last few days. Right. And, guys, I hate to be the party pooper here, but we have to start wrapping up here. I know. Like, we're so going so long. We we can we could go all day on this, but there's not much more we can say that a lot of, like, theoretical articles haven't said already. So, I, I mean, we can touch on a few here on our wrap-ups about a couple of the other symbolism things that we want to talk about. So, let's get into our final, final thoughts here on us. Alrighty. I said this for our get out freeze frame as well, but even just on basis of originality in screenplay and art direction and just overall tone and concept, this movie has so much to offer that you won't get out of any other movie. And if it can get a guy like me who hates horror, doesn't like being scared in a theater to go see it once and likely going to see it again, you know you have a good movie on your hands. Uh, Jordan Peele Mm -hmm. knocks it out of the park again. Is it perfect? No. It's still a plush recliner, but it does so much right, and the direction is just so fresh and unique that I can't do anything but recommend it to anyone who wants to give it a shot. Acting, again, phenomenal. I just want to keep on dumping praise on Lupita Nyong'o and the whole rest of the cast. Everyone does a great, great job with two roles each, And they completely sell this incredibly chaotic, messy, bloody, dark world. It's really, really cool. Really, really something to see. Jake? 
Yeah, I think I've I've done plenty of talking because I was very very pleased with this movie. Um, even little gripes that I normally have with horror movies, I didn't have with this. Like the the typical, you know, you you fall when you're running away, or you enter the dark basement completely alone for no reason. Like there really wasn't a lot of that, and if there was, it kind of added up. Like they sensibly cripple uh, Winston Duke's character in the beginning by taking the bat away from him and him in the knees. Like they set up a lot of stuff that adds up and makes sense. And I don't know, even the things I would normally have problems with, I didn't really. And then from a uh, social commentary, psychological aspect, just top to bottom, there's so much to unpack about this movie. Uh, I was very, very happy with it. Top tier plus recliner, maybe even Royal Throne upon rewatch. I was very pleased, favorite of the year for now. If you can handle a little horror and a little social commentary challenge, definitely go watch it. This is This was something. Scissors, rabbits, a spider, a blue dot on a blanket, the verse Jeremiah 1111, Home Alone, Jaws. These are all things that seem like they have nothing to do with each other, yet are extremely, extremely important to how good Us is. And those are things we have not even touched on, but they all inform these metaphors and these densely intricate little things that Jordan Peele has put in this film. It's not a perfect movie. It's a little messy, but some of the messiest movies are some of the best movies. They're the ones that are ambitious. They think big. And this movie swings for the fences in ways that a lot of horror movies just can't do. I'm glad he was not content with just kind of remaking Get Out. He found a different message and a different way to tell that story and still make it really entertaining. Absolutely go see this movie. It's one of the forefront films of the year so far, obviously. And it's among some of the best in the horror genre at a time where the horror genre is peaking really well. Absolutely go see this movie. Three really strong recommendations as we finish this review of us and this part of the Middle Seeds podcast before we go. Nate Lungarini, where can they find us on the internet? Alrighty, here's how you can get in touch with us. Please like, comment, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Middle Seats. You can also listen to us on the go on all your podcast platforms, including SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. For questions, comments, and updates on the show, keep an eye on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at The Middle Seats. And if you like what you hear and you want to see more content, let us know and spread the word. We talked about Jordan Peele's other horror movie get out you can see that on our youtube channel right now that discussion next time on the middle seats podcast we'll be talking about the latest film from the dc extended universe shazam that'll do it for us tonight for nate langrini and jake hensler i'm andrew oj keep that seat warm everyone we'll be back soon